Welcome to the Upper Perkiomen Community Church Podcast. Join us on Sundays at 258 Main Street, East Greenville, Pennsylvania. Refreshments at 9 a.m. Worship at 9.30 a.m. Or visit us online at upcconline.org. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy our teaching time with our special guest speaker. continuing with our core value series. Uh, this is what we want to be about as a church. Um, these are the things that we, we don't want to be about just as a church as we gather corporately, but as individuals of the church, um, as we reflect on the different core values, we have six in total. This is what we want our DNA to look like. As we leave here um, each Sunday, um, hopefully um, having an encounter with God, a worship experience with God, because God meets with us when we gather together, um, we go out and part of who we are is living out these different core values. And so today, we're going to be focusing on our core value of utilizing natural opportunities for evangelism. Utilizing natural opportunities for evangelism. Um, I just want to say as a preview to this, um, I want you to take what I say today, and then I want you to go back and listen to a message. Um, we had Brian Spears come and preach to us back a few months ago. And he preached on evangelism. And it was a powerful amazing message, um, just so practical to what it looks like as a believer to share our faith. So I want you to take and hopefully listen this morning and take some practical things away, but then also go back. It's on our website. It'll be special speaker Brian Spears and listen to that message if you missed it or go back to notes that you took. So what does it mean, utilizing natural opportunities for evangelism? See, it's really just a fancy way of saying we're called to be personal evangelists. Personal evangelist. Do you believe that you are a personal evangelist? Do you believe that you are a personal evangelist? Because I want to tell you something this morning. God believes you are a personal evangelist. God believes that you have something to share if you're his child. What is personal evangelism? It's the spreading of the Christian gospel by public preaching or personal witness. By public preaching or personal witness. So by default, if you are a child of God, you are a witness to what Christ has done in your life. You can't help it. It's, it's a mandate. It's who you are. In fact, Christ commanded his followers. He said, be my witnesses. He said this reiterated over and over again. Be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Simple way to put personal evangelism, it's one life sharing life with another life. One life sharing life with another life. If you sit here today as a child of God, you are life. The gospel is life. And therefore, you have life to share with the lives that are around you. One of the most amazing things. And I want to just put this statement out there this morning as we get going. Your greatest privilege as a believer is to be part of God's salvation work in the life of someone else. Your greatest privilege as a believer is to be part of God's salvation work in the life of someone else. I had a Bible professor in college who used to say, um, evangelism is like steroids for the soul, okay? Now, I'm not promoting steroids, okay? It was back in the steroid era, okay? Barry Bonds is still slapping, you know, home runs. Uh, but it really is true. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to share your faith with someone and see them come to know Christ. I'm telling you, there's nothing like it. It's the most amazing experience because you've realized, man, God, thank you for the opportunity to take the life that you've given me and share it with someone else. Sometimes it's amazing sharing your faith even with someone who doesn't respond in any way, shape, or form. And it's like, wow, that was useless. 
but it was still amazing because it's what God's commanded me to do. So if it's one of our greatest privileges that we have, then why? Why? You guys know the why there. I don't like preaching on this topic. For some reason, I think I get stuck with it every year, just the way it falls out on the preaching schedule. I'm just going to be totally straight with you. I don't like preaching on this topic. Um, pers- first of all, it's personal because, you know what, and it's for all of us, none of us like to hear about a topic that we know we need to be doing better in. Like, this is one area where I know that everyone in this room, whether you share your faith often or whether you don't share your faith at all, like, it's an area that we could probably, all of us, maybe I'm making an overstatement, but probably all of us can improve in some way, shape, or form. Maybe it's the way we do it, our consistency in doing it. And so this morning, I just want to, I want to get really practical. I don't care if you have never shared your faith or if you do it often. I just want to, I'm going to put out this morning four practical um, just four practical practices and four practical prayers that we can all have um, as personal evangelists. It's going to be a really simple framework, and uh, I just want to read as we get going a story for you. So it was rush hour on the morning of June 1st in West Texas City of San Angelo. Heather Santolano, 36, was driving her white 2012 Mazda on Houston Heart Frontage Road with her 9-year-old daughter and 10-year-old son in the back. Suddenly, a red pickup truck cut them off. Santolano turned the wheel hard to the right, sending the Mazda skidding off the road and down the embankment that ended in a drop-off of over 50 feet. If the car didn't stop, it would go airborne and plunge onto the road that, some, that was 20 feet below. Then a bed of luck. As the car raced toward the edge, its undercarriage got stuck on the cement lip of the embankment ledge, stopping it cold. The occupants, however, were far from safe. The car had come to rest on top of a retaining wall, literally teetering on the edge of disaster. One sudden move by anyone inside could send it over. Jacob Rodriguez watched the scene unfold from the truck accessories company where he works. A veteran, he whispered a Navy mantra, ship, shipmate self. Then he and four other men ran to the car. They leaped onto the trunk to balance the weight as the terrified kids in the back seat watched. Meanwhile, Julio Vasquez and his nephew Marco were driving to their jobs at nearby Premier Automotive. Julio jumped out of the car to help while Marco went to the shop, grabbed a heavy-duty strap, and returned to the dangling car. He tethered the Mazda of the, of an F, to an F1, F-350 truck that had been driven over by one of the other rescuers. With the car secured, the group carefully opened the back doors and helped the children out. But their departure shifted the car's weight, causing it to tilt forward. The men still in the trunk implored Santolano to jump into the back seat to rebalance the weight. She did and then inched to the back door. Finally, the men carefully got off the trunk. Everyone was safe. Another foot, Rodriguez told the USA Today, and this would have been a different story. You know what makes that story amazing? Uh, I mean, the whole, the whole thing is, is a pretty powerful story. I'm one of the few people that still subscribes to Reader's Digest, just because it's nostalgic, okay? Um, so I have the Reader's Digest, and that's a story from a recent Reader's Digest article, and, uh, and uh, it's just a powerful picture of of a several things happening there, but one is the instinct of the people to come to the rescue. They say that a lot of times when something traumatic is happening, most people, almost up to 90%, freeze and don't do anything, or they run in the other direction. Okay, this, this reminds me of when I was young and my sisters would be choking on food. I would literally run the other direction because I was so scared that they were going to choke and die. Literally, that's, that's what I would do. I would literally run. Um, if you remember the un- very unfortunate school shooting that happened this past year in Florida, Broward County, 
Um, what came out after? The security guard during the shooting had froze outside and had never entered the building, even though he was an armed guard and could have stopped it. Because he just, he, his instinct was, I'm just going to stop. I'm just going to, I can't go in. I can't do anything. But you see in this story the amazing instinct of some of these men. I don't know if they froze right when it happened, but there was a lot of people that came running to the scene. They didn't freeze and became part of a rescue effort and ultimately saved three valuable lives in the process. You know, I think when it comes to evangelism, I think a lot of times some of our instincts um, really come in, in, in the way of what our intentions are when it comes to this area. I think a lot of us have that, that freeze instinct, that, that fear that comes over us where we just cannot move. We see our intentions are good. Like if all of you were here, I'm like, hey, on the way home, there's going to be a burning car and there's going to be a baby screaming in the background. Do you want to save the baby? Unless you're sick, everyone here is going to be like, yeah, of course. But sometimes our instincts override our intentions. And we have a desire to do something, but we just can't do it. A paralyzing fear comes over. And sometimes another thing that happens, our distractions override our intentions. That's another thing that happens. Is sometimes we don't even see things because we're so distracted. And I believe that happens a lot with evangelism is there's opportunities. Our intention is to go out and be salt and light every day. I mean, we want to do that. We're like, man, if, if, if I have an opportunity to share Jesus today, I want to do it. But we're distracted and we often miss the amazing opportunities that God puts before us. So practices, when I say four practices today, they're simply tools. So if we're wearing a tool belt, like on a construction site, today we're just going to put four tools in that are going to help us be prepared for personal evangelism. All of us are personal evangelists. It's what it is. You can't help it. It's what you are. So how do we do that? Let's, let's look forward. So Matthew 19, verses 16 to 22, we're going to go to a, story, a powerful short story that we have before us. And let me just read these verses and follow along with me, starting in verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him, that's Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not, shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He had great possessions. So what's the first practice that we can take away here that Jesus unfolds? We're just going to literally watch personal evangelism happen as he goes through this. So the first practice that we have to develop as we go about evangelism is we have to recognize the turmoil of every human heart apart from God. That's a mouthful there, but you can see it up on the screen if you're following. We have to recognize the turmoil of every human heart apart from God. This is before we ever go out. This is pre-evangelism. This is something that we have to understand as believers, as we do life, as we interact with people, we need to realize that every person we come into contact that doesn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, their life is in turmoil and grave danger, like that car teetering on the edge. 
teetering on the edge of that, grave dangers. Hebrews 9.27, and just as it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. Your eyes were all one breath away. We talked about it this morning. We've had a lot of death in our family over the last few weeks. This past Tuesday, I got a call from my dad that says, you know, your grandfather has taken his last breath. Now, I've been blessed. I'm 32 years old, and this is my first grandparent to pass away. I know um, I was talking with a couple of you this morning. You're like, my last grandparent passed away when I was two years old. So I've been very blessed, and, and my grandfather loved the Lord, was passionate about him, and I had the opportunity to preside um, over the funeral this week. But whenever you're confronted with death, because, like, you don't think about death that much unless you're confronted with it. Like, it hits you. You can't help it once it just, like, Tuesday morning, I was getting ready to go into a meeting, um, and all of a sudden I get a phone call, and death. It's right there. Can't avoid it. One breath away. See, this is so important to understand this because Jesus understood this with every person he came into contact with. The woman at the well, Pontius Pilate, his own disciples, the young rich ruler that we read about this morning. Jesus always looked past, he looked past all the circumstances of now and went right to the condition of their heart. Why? Because he realized they were in turmoil apart from him. Every time. We have to do the same thing. And, and, and an example I talked about is our distractions often override our intentions. So Jesus didn't get caught up in the fact that this was a young, wealthy, influential person. It didn't matter to him. It was no different than when he went to the marginalized Samaritan woman who nobody would talk to. It didn't matter that this was a young, rich, probably very influential man coming to him. Jesus didn't matter. I'm going right at his heart. I'm going right for it. This guy is in turmoil. Or he's seeking something. His heart wants more. I think this is where we often miss it before we even begin. We focus more on the external, external than we do the internal. I love that Jesus encountered a rich young man. I mean, this story, we, he could have encountered anybody. And he encountered lots of different people. But it was the rich young man. What are two things that our Western culture values very highly? Wealth, material stability. It doesn't have to be like, you know, billionaire money. But we want material stability and what we, how many of us have this phrase, oh, to be young again, right? Oh, to be young again, okay? And it doesn't matter what age. As you, as you get older and older, you say, oh, to be young again. We value some of the experiences that we had and things we were able to do, our physical ability, when we were young. And so I think oftentimes what happens is we attach our cultural distractions to the opportunity to actually see someone's heart. And there's just some practical ways, like these are phrases that we use. They're really nice people. They're just really nice people. Yeah, they might be, but their heart's in turmoil. This dude's got, man, <laughs> my neighbor just got another promotion. Dude's got a great job. He's got it together, man. <laughs> I mean, my neighbor, whew, making bank. You know, like, he's doing well. I, they're probably not going to be our neighbors much longer. They're going to go buy a bigger house. Life must be really, really good. Have you seen their kids? Hate their kids. All three of them, they, they score all the goals. While my kids out on the field running around in circles, their kids scoring all the goals. Their family's got it all together. They must be a really good family. They got smart, successful, athletic kids. <sighs> Look at that mom. She has it all together. Her four kids are marching behind her perfectly through Target, saying, yes, ma'am, and yes, sir. Like, look at that. You know, this happens. This is what, this is what we do. Like, real-life things, real people walk in front of us that we have opportunities to, and we get distracted by what we label 
as the having it all together. Man, that guy's got great health. She has great health. She never ages. And look at me. Look at what he just bought her. That diamond is massive. They must have a really happy marriage. Look at that. Look how happy she is. Look at all their things they do together. I don't know what that looks like for you. Those were just some of the ones that come to mind for me. But we often, and this is a sad part of personal evangelism, we often get distracted by what our world labels as having it all together. And we totally miss what's going on behind the scenes of the heart. The rich young man, and yet he was still searching, still looking, still wanting more. See, apart from God, there is no peace. There's no happiness. There may be the appearance of happiness. There's temporary happiness. Dude, any person that buys a new house is happy for a couple weeks, okay, until the, the new house becomes the old house, right? Anybody, any teenager gets their first car, you're pumped until it breaks down the first week, you know? Like, happiness is so temporary and fleeting in our world. There's no fulfillment. There's no satisfaction apart from God. We have to understand this. Sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes it's not. But everyone around us is searching for more apart from God. So how do we identify the root issues and not get distracted? Jesus is going to go right at it. We're going to unpack these verses, but real quick, he goes right at it. So how do we not stay distracted? Because people seem to be so put together, don't they? Especially in our social media picture crazy age. Like everyone seems to have it together because they're putting forth the highlights of their life. So I just want to give you a little tip. This is from, um, I mean, me and John could probably both attest to this from a, from a pastor's heart and just as we observe lives is if you're, if you're struggling with, hey, you're witnessing to someone and you're like, I just can't identify where the turmoil is, I just want to give you this little tip. Look for the excess in their life. Look for the excess. What do I mean by that? Excess, excess often identifies the emptiness or the heart issue going on. So, for example, guy works way too much, excessively works too much. There's probably something behind that. A lack of responsibility, trying to avoid certain responsibilities in other areas. A, a identity where they want to rise and their identity is in their job. Too much exercise can be another thing. The pressure to look or feel a certain way. You notice I'm saying too much here. I'm not saying exercise, work, all these things are bad. But where there's excess, there's often an emptiness. Too much focus on kids. It's often misplaced fulfillment. Often a sign of maybe marriage struggles. You know, there's couples who will have kids just because they want to hide that their marriage is a mess. So they think that if they have another kid, that'll bring them this unity that they don't have because the kid will fix the problem. (laughs) Seems good in the front end. On the post end, you still have the same problems even after having a kid. Too much focus. Too many social media posts. An unhealthy need for affirmation might be the emptiness behind it. Identity issues, pride, too many claims of success. You're probably hiding something that's going on. Too much eating. Maybe shows an emptiness, lack of self-control and key other coping with things that are going on. Too much worrying, a lack of trust in God's being in control. You see, the sinful heart desires constant fulfillment, excess. So Jesus often looked for the excess to help identify the turmoil. And we got to get this. We got to understand this. An example of this is the woman at the well, John chapter 4. I just want to give you a practical example where Jesus did this. He goes to the woman. He says, go call your husband. Bring him here. I want to talk to him too. And what does she say back to him? She says, I have no husband. And then how does Jesus respond? He goes, this is right. You have excess. You've had five husbands, 
And the man you're with right now is not even your husband. He goes right at it. He identifies the turmoil of her heart. He says, there's something deeper here because you're living it out in this way. So what does this mean? Okay, you're like, this is why I hate preaching on this topic because then you're like, so what are we supposed to do? Just walk around and like be judgmental and live like depressed? Like, man, look at all the people's problems of the world and uh, this is terrible. No. But what it does mean is that we need to have a grasp on reality. Like we really do. We need to have a grasp on the reality that people are worshiping empty things around us every day. Everyone's worshiping all the time. 24-7, we're worshiping something. And people worship things all the time, and they come back, they lay their head on their pillow at night, and they go, I'm empty again. I'm empty again. The people around you are searching for something more, and we have the more. Everyone just say that. We have the more. We have the more. We got to do better than that. We have the more. We do. We have it. We have the more. So what's our second practice or tool? We need to realize the cause of the heart turmoil is sin. We need to realize the cause. I just gave you some examples of how to identify that, but this is very unpopular, okay? Sin is not a cool word, okay? It's not the way you grow big churches. It's not the way you have, like, a lot of friends, okay? Sin is not a cool word. Um, And we like to explain in our culture, like, all our issues, we don't like to just sometimes just say, it's sin. We blame it on all kinds of things. We blame it on life circumstances, bad luck. Uh, genetic tendencies or family history, bad relationships, current feelings, et cetera, et cetera. But Jesus always went to the heart, called sin, sin, and was never surprised by it. Why? Because the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all else. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17, 9. So look at these verses. Look what happens here. Verse 17. So we see he comes up in verse 16, and he asks the question, Teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus doesn't get distracted. He realizes this is an opportunity. There's a heart in turmoil here. Then we see in verse 17, and he said to him, why do you ask me what is good? Like, like why? Why are you coming? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. And then he goes through the commandments that were very prevalent and this man would have known in the Jewish culture. I mean, these were like everywhere. Like these are the things you have to do to achieve holiness. This was the pressure that was put on them in Judaism. So Jesus went, and he's going to start to identify where is the sin issue in this guy's life. And he's going to begin to unpack it. And he's trying to identify it. You see there, he asks questions. You see, we need to not be surprised by sin. Like, I think sometimes we still struggle with being surprised by what the heart can do. I mean, we live in the past month alone. Just take the news. If you just took the news alone... We live in evil times. Like, if you're questioning, is man's heart desperately wicked, then turn on the 11 o'clock news. I mean, the heart is desperately wicked. Our culture is desperately wicked. But sometimes we act surprised, like, oh, my word, I can't believe they passed that legislation that's going to kill babies, okay? And we go, oh, how can that be? Or we get surprised by different political things that happen. We get surprised by all types of things. Man, I can't believe that couple went through a divorce. Why? It's two sinners living together apart from Christ. If I didn't have Christ, I'd be divorced too. You know, like, that's, this sin should not surprise us in any way, shape, or form, but we often lift response. And listen, our response to those things should be to respond with, this is wrong, this is evil. I'm not saying, like, this is wrong, but here's the problem, okay? Here's the problem with sin, is we see it played out on the world stage, in the news, on social media, and and we're loud about it. But here's where personal evangelism comes in, and this is where we drop the ball often. 
But here's the problem. We don't say a word about the sin that is playing itself out right in front of us in the lives of our coworkers, in the lives of our neighbors, in the lives of our friends that we've built relationships with. We don't only call sin out in, in, in one another's lives often as believers that are supposed to care and love for one another. We have to get comfortable with the idea of sin as, as believers because we've been washed in the blood. We have to identify sin, call sin, sin as it is. And you're going to see Jesus unpack that here in these verses. And you say, okay, this, and this is another example. Brian, you lost me. I'm done. Like, I am not going to do that. This is where a lot of us are, okay? Just calling it straight. This is where you lost, you're telling me you want me to develop the practice of telling my unsafe friends and coworkers that they are sinners. For real? You want me to do that? No, no, God wants you to do that. Because that's where the power of the gospel is. But, but before I just say, like, going around calling people, like, sinners, that's not how you do it, okay? Jesus lays out how we do it in these verses. Look what he does. Verse 17, he asks a direct question. See, when it comes to personal evangelism, questions are powerful. They're so huge. Learn to ask questions. He says to him in there, he goes, he comes to him, how do I receive eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you ask me what is good? What is Jesus trying to identify in that moment as he asks that question? He's trying to unpack that man's worldview. Where is he coming from? Why does he think this way? He's going to identify that he's, you know, a moralist. Like if I keep these things, then I'm good enough and I can go to heaven. But look at the power of that. In the process of Jesus identifying the sin, and eventually he's going to call him out on his sin and make him respond to it given the option to respond to it, he asks a question. Like, what do you mean it is to be, like, what, what is it to be good? Ask direct questions. Help people see what they already know and feel is going on. Questions give clarity to confusion as we walk through this with someone. Another thing that you did is Jesus created a conversation. Create conversations, not arguments. You see in that dialogue, oh, man, it's so, I, I just, I love how Jesus is just like, he's creating a conversation. There's no argument here. There's no, there's no like, dude, you're messed up, man. Get out of here. Like, this is like, what, what are you thinking? Here's what you need to do. Here's what it's about. Like, Jesus created an environment where this man was willing to come up to him and have a conversation. This is so important in personal evangelism is that we're, we're able to identify the root sin issue but doing it how God has told us to do it. So 1 Peter 3.15 says this, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. So if you really think God is holy, here's what you do. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. But then we often miss this part, especially your apologetic types. They're like, I'm ready to give an answer. Let's go. Come on. Someone argue with me. I'll give you the answer. But we forget this part of the verse. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. Personal evangelism is never an argument. Because when you begin to argue, you're trying to be the Savior. God's the Savior. God does the work. God does the saving. And we have to remember that. You realize that some people don't need, like, don't even know they need a Savior until they're told about their sin. Jesus did this over and over again. Sometimes people are just, they, they live in a cycle and when you live in a cycle of something, you often, it's hard to see outside of, of your life circumstances. And we have an amazing opportunity to call sin, sin in people's lives, but to do it gently and respectfully. Who else is going to do it? 
I have a friend, uh, nobody knows in this room, um, who I've built a relationship with over the last couple years. And uh, back a little bit a while ago, he got his second DUI, and uh, he's going to lose his license coming up in February. And uh, he, was just, he was just down. We were having a conversation about it, and it's going to throw a wrench in a lot of things in his life, obviously, as any DUI does. And um, I had built a relationship with him, and finally I'm like, thank you, Lord. This is the moment. And I said, this is, like, what else needs to happen in your life before you realize, like, like God's the answer. Like, this excess that you have in your life, what was his excess? He was drinking too much because he was trying to fill a void that's there. Remember, identify the excess. It shows the emptiness. So I went to him, and I said, I think now's the time. Well, his response was, um, I don't need no bleeping God. In the moment, that's what it was. But you want to know what happened? It was really cool. Next time I saw him, he goes, hey, uh, I just want to, I was just wondering if uh, you would do my wedding. That's the next conversation. I'm like, <laughs> the last words you said to me were, I don't, you know. And uh, he goes, I just really appreciate how you, like, care and speak truth. Um, and nobody else does that. And uh, I appreciate it. Now, I don't say that to say, you know, I had 100 opportunities with other people before that where I didn't do that. So I'm not saying, hey, look at me. But I share that to say, man, if we are willing to lovingly, and in that same conversation that I had with him, I said, hey, listen, if you ever get in trouble um, during that time and need a ride somewhere, I want you to be the first person I call. I want, I, want, I want to be the first person you call to help get you a ride to wherever you're going. And that will probably happen. It will probably happen at a very inconvenient time in my life, like when I'm getting ready for bed and he calls and says, hey, I need a ride somewhere. But you know what? That's okay because that's an opportunity. So that's another tool. Number three, remember that salvation requires a recognition of need. So verse 21, Jesus is breaking this down for this guy. And he says, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Look at what Jesus says in this moment. He's trying to get to the, the crux of it. He, he, repentance, okay, is a key part of salvation. It's a turning away from what you hold so dear and saying Christ is more valuable because my sin is so great. I need a savior right now and I'm willing to turn my whole life around and follow him. And Jesus is getting to that point that says, if you're really so good, go sell everything you have and follow me. Let's go, let's do it. This is an important time as you identify sin in someone's life. Don't compare it to your own imperfections. Compare it to God's perfection, the law. Jesus used the law to say, listen, no one can get to God. You need Christ in your life. You need to be washed in what Christ has done for you on the cross. And so the next move matters in the life of an unbeliever. This is decision time, as we have often called it, where the young rich ruler wanted something he wasn't willing to sacrifice for. we got to be aware of this. There's going to be opportunities where we share the gospel, and a person's going to respond with, I'm not, willing, I'm not willing to do that. And that's okay. Remember, God saves. We were faithful in sowing the seed. At the end of the day, he didn't really believe he needed Jesus. There would there'd be no repentance in this story, unfortunately. There'd be a turning away from who he was to follow Jesus. Uh, in today's terms, or if we were to like, teach an evangelism class and like, had sent Jesus out, he failed. He had someone come to him who was seeking to be saved, and the guy walks away, not converted. We would say, Jesus failed, but did he? No. Because he did what he was called to do. He called him to repentance. And he walks away. 
The fourth pull, it's just important to remember the repentance component. It would have been easy for Jesus there just to kind of be like, ah, oh, man, let me just tell you all the good things and let's convert you and then we'll work out like some of the theology stuff later. No, there's a clear call. Then the last one tool is you require a clear call. In Mark 10, 21, it's the parallel passage of this where Mark uh, is, is unfolding the story in his gospel. And, and right at the end of this story, it says, and looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. Jesus felt a love for him. Isn't that interesting? After Jesus felt a love for him, right as he's about to say, watch him walk away. Love doesn't mean we can give an easier watered-down clear call to what Christ commands. Um, Jesus didn't kind of die on the cross so that we can kind of follow him. And that's, that's got to be so clear in our call. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The power in our message is the clarity of our message. As soon as we water it down, we lose the power of our message. When we water it down, just to like, we get in the moment, and you're like, ah, this is where it's going to get tough. Ah, this is when I have to really like say it, and I can't. And ah, the power of our message is the clarity of our message as we unpack this. Without God, you are empty, always searching, destined for eternity apart from God. But let me tell you something that what Jesus did. This is the opportunity we have. He died for your sin, so your sin and my sin is covered in the perfect spotless sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because of Christ's death, you can have access to God through repenting of your sin and recognizing your need of a Savior. There is a new direction for your life. Will you give your life to Christ? That's where we got to be. That's how we share. So this can all be super overwhelming, okay? I hope you wrote these down and can unpack these. Like, if you just stop here, it's like, I don't even want to get up from my seat and go try this because it's overwhelming. And so it's impossible, though, without one key ingredient. And that's where I just want to share a quick four practical prayers. I'm not going to unpack them. Four practical prayers for you um, that as you go out, and I just want to challenge, like, what if we all just prayed these four prayers, okay? Number one, God, help me to see the lost people as you do. Help me to see lost people as you do. Help my distractions to get out of the way so that I can actually see people that are lost. Number two, God, give me the opportunities to share the gospel. Lord, I'm going to go out. I'm going to do my thing today. I'm stop at Wawa. I'm going to do this. Give me the opportunities today. Show them. Make them like, bam, right in my face. Three, God, give me the courage to share about you. Man, do we need courage. I'm not minimizing any fear that you have. God, give me courage. Number four, God, let me see people saved. A lot of us, some of you I know share your faith. And this is the discouraging part is when you share your faith, you share your faith, you share your faith, but you don't have any fruit. It's okay to ask God, say, God, can you do something here? Like, I want to see people saved. I'm trying to be faithful to you. Do it. I got nothing else. Prayer reminds me of my role in evangelism, but more importantly, it reminds me of God's role in evangelism. That's why we got to start with prayer. It reminds me of my role, which is just to be obedient, but more importantly, it reminds me that God is the one that saves. We share, God saves. I want to read a quick list for you. Accountant, administrative assistant, Artist, barista, bus driver, business owner, carpenter, CEO, coach, computer programmer, counselor, dad, dental assistant, electrician, engineer, facilities manager, farmer, financial advisor, food service worker, general manager, hairdresser, house cleaner, human resources coordinator, HVAC tech, insurance services, IT tech, janitor, manager, marketer, mechanic, military personnel, mom, nanny, nurse, occupational therapist, pastor, police officer, production manager, project manager, Photographer, retail services, retiree, sales associate, salesperson, school board member, scientist, seamstress, 
software developer, software engineer, student, teacher, technician, tutor, veterinarian, waitress, welder, warehouse worker. That right there is a list of all the jobs that I could remember that I knew off the top of my head that we go out when we wake up every morning, our church goes out and does these things. Right there. That's a lot of influence. And I probably, I know I missed even more in here. I tried to do broad. Like there's a lot of teachers in here. There's a lot of engineers that do different types of engineers. But imagine the impact of our influence if every one of those jobs started with these four prayers every morning, say, God, I'm going to give these things to you, and then put these four things into practice, the four tools that we talked about today. Imagine what that could look like in our lives and in our church as we see people saved. Picture someone in your sphere as we close. Picture someone in your sphere of influence that is teetering in that car. Who is it? Now, you might say, I don't have anyone. And that's where you go out and go find, find it. Be purposeful. Be intentional. I'll close with this. This is where I don't want to be. 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5 is a powerful verse. It says, but understand this, that in the last days, there will become times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self. I love myself. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. I don't want to be a person that people have to avoid because I'm living all those things out while I'm avoiding the amazing power and opportunity that I have to go out and be on a rescue mission every day of souls that are teetering in that car, spending eternity somewhere. Every one of us will spend eternity somewhere. If you're here today and don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ or want to know more, I'm telling you right now, you may not even know it, but you are teetering in a car today. One breath away. My grandfather didn't know when he woke up that, hey, today's going to be my last day. But guess what the cool thing is? I'm going to go up there, and yeah, I'll be sad. It's tough. This is my first grandparent lost. But man, there's going to be a lot more rejoicing going on because this, this life compared to eternity. And because he repented, not because he thought God was cool or Jesus was like this cool hip thing. No, because he gave his life because he was a sinner groveling at the cross saying, save me, God, is he spends eternity with God. That's the opportunity that we have, the message that we have to give to a dying world. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity. We thank you for this powerful story of the young, rich ruler. God, you, you were so intentional with him as you shared the truth with him, God. But you loved him dearly, and so you were willing to speak truth. God, I pray that as we, as messengers, witnesses to what you've done in our lives, God, as we have an opportunity to go out and impact others, God, man, will we be faithful. Would we be faithful, God, to the powerful message that you've given us, God? We have a helper. We have a Holy Spirit who is working ahead of us. God, we have you. We have, we have Jesus Christ praying for us daily. God, you are the greatest evangelist. So I pray, God, that we would take personal evangelism seriously and that we would see fruit of our labor, God. Thank you for the truth of your word this morning, your name.